If you would this evening turn to a very exciting text, that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at just a few verses, verses 50 through 58, concluding this chapter, this glorious chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. I was reminded as I read these words this week about climax in literature or productions or other things. We watched, my wife and I watched a musical last night, and of course the apex of a musical production is always the song that lets out all the emotions and resolves all the problems of the show. And so at that point, as the characters sing that particular song, that is where the expression comes out the most. In literature, it's called the climax. Here, in 1 Corinthians, it is the victory song. After addressing all the problems, addressing all the questions of the Corinthian church that he was inspired to address, getting to the heart of the matters in the church, he came to this chapter, which was the climax of the letter speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then these verses, verses 50 through 58, form the wonderful mountaintop experience of this letter. Follow along as I read. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. As we consider these words, the victory song of the letter to the Corinthians, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, let us marvel and wonder at these words. Give us the energy and the commitment to labor in service to you and to hear your word tonight. Give us your spirit to strengthen us, to gift us for the work of the kingdom, and to carry out the fruit that you have called us to bear as believers in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Some estimates tell us that in the last 2,000 years, there may have been as many as 70 million Christian martyrs. Now, if you know what Christian martyrs are, these are individuals who died for the faith. 
I don't know if those estimates are accurate. I don't know how we could possibly know whether they're accurate or not. There are some that say there are as many as 100,000 people every year die for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, I tend to think that might be a high estimate, although some would say it is accurate. Again, who knows? All we know is that in some places, being a Christian and proclaiming Jesus Christ is a very dangerous proposition. It can lead to imprisonment. It can lead in almost any society to mocking and to separation from friends and relatives and to loss of freedoms and loss of all kinds of things that we hold dear in life. But perhaps the greatest cost is the cost of life itself. What could possibly cause folks to stand upon their beliefs against all odds, against all the things that the world has to offer, even to the point of death? What is it that can cause someone on the other side of the world to face a regime that they know will persecute them for their faith, place them in jail, and place their families in jeopardy because they profess to believe in Jesus Christ? What is it that can cause somebody in the midst of difficulty to lose their job, lose their possessions, lose their freedoms, and in all things, in the end, lose their life for the sake of Christ? Well, it's because of this passage and those like it that we are reminded in Christ is the victory over death. First of all, he reminds us about how we can inherit the kingdom of God. Secondly, is this victory hymn, a quotation particularly from Isaiah 25 or Hosea 13, 14 about death and it being defeated by Christ. And finally, he reminds us in the last verse of what this doctrine means for us today so we can put that victory into action. First of all, a reminder of where we've been in 1 Corinthians. Again, we've been in a letter where this church is troubled, this, letter, uh, this church is divided, it has all kinds of difficulties and problems. Someone reminded me this week, uh, that they remember uh, hearing about those churches that call, them, uh, call themselves by the name Corinth or Corinthian. And we laughed about it, thinking this is probably one of the worst examples in the Bible of a church. Uh, they had all kinds of problems, and Paul just laid it out on the lines. They were immoral, they were divided, they were filled with all kinds of bad worship practices, and it seems like... Uh, that church was probably in jeopardy of just falling apart altogether. And Paul, in patience and kindness, because of his love for them, began to address these things, uh, places where the church needed to be rebuked, places where the church needed to be encouraged, places where the church needed to be told to be united together in one. And he came to this last chapter to remind them not only of the answers to the questions about the resurrection and the, the, uh, the, the common uh, pushback of the, uh, the people of the world against this doctrine of the resurrection, but here we get to the end of the chapter and he reminds us of the wonder of inheriting the kingdom of God. He says, I tell you this. In other words, he's saying here, this is important. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom 
of God. So he begins with what will not inherit the kingdom. And of course here is flesh and blood. He's just gone uh, through the, the indication here that resurrected bodies somehow are different than our physical bodies. He reminds us that there is something different about going into the kingdom of God. And this should come as no surprise. Jesus himself said much the same to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When he was looking at Nicodemus and he was teaching him about being born again, he says, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless you are born of the flesh and something else from above, from the spirit. And so here we are reminded that unless we believe in Jesus Christ, we cannot attain the kingdom of God. It also reminds us in a literal sense Those who just have our mortal bodies without a change of some sort also may not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, here he says, the perishable do not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a reminder that each one of us has a perishable body. We have uh, what you might say is an expiration date marked on us. We don't see the date. God does. He's marked it. He knows the date of our days and the length of our lives. And all of us, until Jesus comes back, will die. And we are reminded that the perishable cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We must be changed. Something must change in us. And here is what he describes in verse 51 as a mystery. We don't know how it's going to happen We don't know exactly how it works, but we are being revealed here some words about this mystery. It says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, of course, when he says not all will sleep, we know that this is a euphemism for death. This is a reminder that Jesus is going to come back before everyone on the face of the earth dies. Now, some of us certainly will die, and of course, there's been 2,000 years approximately of dying since this letter was written, and everyone in that time period, except for the ones living today, have all died. But he says this, we shall not all die, or not all sleep. Why? Because Jesus is going to be coming back when there are some who believe in him are still alive. Instead, he says, we shall all be changed. Now, this all is necessary, uh, necessarily to be understood as those who are in Christ, those who are particularly believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are inheriting the kingdom of God. We will be changed. And here's how the change will take place. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, first of all, the word moment is the Greek word from which we get the word atom. It is the smallest particle of time that the author could possibly have imagined at this point. We won't even notice time taking place as this happens. We might say the snap of a finger or even shorter. And, of course, the twinkling of an eye, if you don't look at the person, you're going to miss it. That twinkling of the eye 
You know what it is when somebody receives some good news or somebody wants to tell you about uh, one of their, their favorite things, perhaps their child or some great experience they've had or something that is dear to their heart and they get this twinkle in the eye and if you don't look at the right time, you'll miss it. Here it is. At the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Then it says, as well, at the last trumpet. Now it's interesting, the idea of a trumpet is nothing new in scriptures. Trumpets were called uh, to call out the troops and to give them signals in battle. Trumpets were to be warning the people of impending danger. Trumpets were to signal the time of worship. Trumpets were blown when the walls of Jericho fell. Trumpets are out throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, they were known as ram's horns. Uh, in fact, uh, you can still get a shofar uh, that is blessed and uh, is, is particularly uh, uh, couth as far as the, the Jewish people are concerned. I have one in my office. I could come blow it for you if you wanted. It's a high piercing signal. They also at some point began to create trumpets sort of like we know today by metal and all those things. But this idea of the last trumpet is nothing new. Jesus talked about the trumpet in Matthew 24. Paul talks about the trumpet when Jesus comes back in 1 Thessalonians 4. The concept is this. When Jesus comes back, nobody's going to miss it because the trumpet will be blown. Now I know there are all kinds of popular ideas of eschatology that says that unbelievers will just miss what happens and people will suddenly be gone, but the problem is this. There will be a long sustained note of this trumpet that all the world shall hear and God's people will be changed in that moment. Here it is. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. In other words, those who have died in Christ, they will be changed in such a way that they will now have imperishable bodies, and those who are still living at the return of Jesus will be changed at that moment, given these imperishable bodies as well. The dead are raised imperishable, and the living are changed. What a wonder that will be. Again, last week we looked at what does it mean that we will be changed, how will our bodies be different and all those things. I don't know the answers to all those things except these bodies will no longer die. They will no longer decay. They will be different in a sense so that they can inherit the kingdom <coughs> of heaven. Verse 53 then reminds us of the contrast. For this perishable body, again a reminder, in case you didn't know, your body is in decay. It's in decay because of sin, because of your sin, because of the sin of the world, and because of sins against you and against others, but particularly against God. And because there is sin in the world, death and destruction are coming to your body. If you are young, it's hard to understand how that works. Sometimes we think that we are imperishable, and sometimes we who don't have quite as many problems uh, when it comes to our health don't think about it too much, but we have to come to the reality that our bodies are perishable. But in Christ, at this moment, when we are changed, we will be given imperishable bodies. They will no longer die. 
they will no longer decay. In case this isn't enough, he reminds us that we have mortal bodies. This mortal body that is prone to die will put on immortality. No longer will death reign over us and our bodies. Now I have to say it was interesting this past week when uh, the construction continues down the hallway of this room. Uh, we have an orchestra that meets here on Friday called the Saltwater Chamber Orchestra. And they will come in here on Fridays and they will close the doors and they will be practicing together. And this week there happened to be some workers that were down on the other side of the plastic and the place where they're constructing and they began to make noise. Lo and behold, at one point, as the orchestra was practicing, uh, they began to practice and play, and then it seemed like most of the instruments stopped, but there was one instrument that kept a sustained note. And we thought, Gene and I both thought, what's going on? Why is that person giving this sustained note? It just happened to be that the pitch of the instrument that was being used for construction down the hallway was giving off a noise similar to what the orchestra was playing. It was a long, sustained note long after they had stopped playing. This, in my mind, is the picture of Jesus coming back and the sound we will hear. A long, sustained note that cannot be missed. That's what trumpets were for. They were not for a soft melody. They were not just to uh, encourage those around them. It was a sharp note to get people's attention. And when Jesus comes back, we're not going to miss it. We, can, we have this promise that when Jesus comes back, wonderful things are going to happen. Scary things for a world facing destruction are going to happen. But we won't miss it because the trumpet will be blown from heaven. And what a day of rejoicing that will be because it's a victory hymn. This is the apex of this passage beginning at verse 54. Paul writes, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. In other words, he's saying here is the prediction of God's word from Isaiah 25 or Hosea 13. These predictions that were taken place in prophecy by God's inspired prophets. And they prophesied this particular thing. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? When he says death is swallowed up in victory, what does he mean? He means two things. First of all, there's no more victory for death. You know death has its victory, doesn't it? Some of us have been severely impacted by death. We've had a loved one pass away, someone close to us pass away. We've lost children or parents or spouses or other friends and relatives close to us, and it hurts. It's painful. It's not something we should consider natural to God's created order. It is because of God's punishment of sin. The wages of sin is death. And because of sin in the world, because of my sin and your sin and the sin of all those who have come before us, 
Death has been reigning. It is something that is a veil or a covering upon all of creation, upon all of the people of the earth. And when we hear that there will come a moment when death will be no more, that is a time of victory. He says, no more victory for death. We could turn to Revelation chapter 20 when it tells us that at that particular moment described in Revelation, death will be thrown in the lake of fire. Now, it sounds kind of strange. How can death be thrown in there? I don't know exactly how that works. But here it is. Death will be conquered. Then he also says, O death, where is your sting? This is perhaps the now part of this victory in Christ. The final victory, the not yet part, is that death itself will be conquered forever and will no more have its victory over people. But now, the sting of death is lessened. As some commentators say, God has removed the stinger of death as if it were a wasp or a bee. That sting has been removed. What is death's sting? Verse 56 tells us, the sting of death is sin. When Jesus died on that cross, giving definite atonement for all of his people, all those whom he had chosen from before the foundation of the world to send his Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin and to cause them to desire for the first time to seek the God of the scriptures, a God who is gracious and merciful and who would forgive sinners of their sins. When God accomplished this by Jesus' death on the cross to take our sins on Jesus' back and to give us the righteousness of Christ, sin had been conquered. As it says in another place by Paul, our sin was nailed to the cross, publicly, publicly demonstrated to have been defeated. That sting has been defeated by Jesus Christ on the cross. Death's sting is no more. And the power of sin, here again, the reminder of the power of sin of all things is the law. Now how can the law be the power of sin? Because we are so ruthlessly wicked. We are so depraved in our minds seeking to be enemies of God When we see God's holy law and what's held up to us as the things which please God, those things which we do to please him and those things that we refrain from doing to please him, we see that law and our depraved hearts want to break it. And we're told by the law that we have sin. That knowledge of sin becomes within itself a power that powers us to keep on sinning. And he says that this power is broken. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? By these questions, rhetorical questions, Paul is telling us that Jesus is defeating sin and death. I remember several years ago when our kids were very little, We went on a hike by a waterfall. 
We like to do that. We like to do hiking in those days, and we still like to do it, although we don't get as many opportunities now. But I remember walking at that waterfall, and our kids were little, and lo and behold, my memory of this, I don't think my daughter's memory is quite the same, but my memory of this experience is that we saw a hole in the ground that my daughter uh, tended to kick with her feet. The problem was that hole in the ground was a yellow jacket's nest. And so here we were out in the middle of this pathway uh, with no other people around, and these yellow jackets were uh, 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 strung up and and also uh, mad at us, and so they began to come after us. And every one of us, even little Xander, who was like two years old at the time, one and a half, I think he was, he got stung. And if you know anything about a yellow jacket sting, you know that it hurts. And it not only hurts, but it tends to ebb and flow. It'll, it'll kind of fade away, and then it'll start hurting again. And here, they all got stung at least once, and I got stung about three or four times, and we had to vacate the area. We had to go, in fact, to a place where we could get in the water so we could get away from these yellow jackets. Well, yellow jackets, if they didn't have stings, they wouldn't be so bad, would they? In fact, they're kind of beautiful. Yellow jackets, yellow and black, something you don't often see on creatures in nature. And if you were to just observe these insects, they don't seem to bother you so much most of the time just when they're angry. But boy, those stings really get you, don't they? You see, yellow jackets with no sting would not be a big problem. So it is with death. When death's sting is removed, Paul can say, to die is better. Think about those words. In Philippians, he says, for me to die is gain. In other words, he's saying that right now, the sting of death, that is sin that separates us from God, because of sin being defeated on the cross already, in the already, death stinger has been removed. So that right now, in trusting and committing our spirit to the Lord Jesus, we will not fear death in the same way. By faith, we understand that death is better for us because we will be with Christ. But the future aspect of of this is this. Death itself will be defeated and doomed when Jesus comes back. So then is the great turn of this passage, verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Not just the truth that Jesus defeats death on the cross, Not just that Jesus has defeated the sting of death by accomplishing the work of the cross. Not just that in the future we will see death defeated. But right now, in Christ, God has given us this victory. So that in the present, we should not fear death as we did before. And in the anticipation of the kingdom to come, death will be no more. No crying, no pain. We have that victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. A victory that we did not accomplish, but a victory that God has given us. So then, 
this is the end of the letter, right? When Jesus, or when Paul uh, tells us about the victory, that's a good enough thing, isn't it? That's a great hymn. That's an Easter hymn to sing. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? But Paul does not end there. He says one of these things, therefore, my daughter just loves it when I quote others who have said before me, what is the therefore, therefore? It is saying, knowing that this great doctrine of resurrection and death is here, what difference does that make in our lives? My beloved brothers, first of all, be steadfast, immovable. First of all, he says, be steadfast and immovable. That is, An understanding that here is where we stand. We stand upon Christ. There is no other place for us to go to receive the benefits of the kingdom of heaven. Stand on the truths of the word of God. Stand on the wonder of the cross. Stand in Jesus Christ. And there stand. The world is going to tempt us to move our place, to move our position, to take a stand somewhere else. I want to read for you from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, Perhaps you've read this before on the person of Polycarp. Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John and an overseer of the church in Smyrna and heard that soldiers were looking for him and tried to escape but was discovered by a child. After feeding the guards who captured him, he asked for an hour in prayer, which they gave him. He prayed with such fervency that his guards said they were sorry that they were the ones who captured him. Nevertheless, he was taken before the governor and condemned to be burned in the marketplace. After his sentence was given, the governor said to him, Reproach Christ and I will release you. Polycarp reportedly answered, Eighty-six years I have served him and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? In the marketplace, he was tied to the stake rather than nailed, as was the usual custom, because he assured them he would stand immovable in the flames and not fight them. As the dry sticks placed around him were lit, the flames rose up and circled his body without touching him. The executioner was then ordered to pierce him with a sword. When he did, a great quantity of of blood gushed out and put out the fire. Although his Christian friends asked to be given his body as it was so they could bury him, The enemies of the gospel insisted that it be burned in the fire, which was done. What would cause an 86-year-old man to stand immovable while they burned his body to death? It was the therefore. He knew that the stinger of death had been removed. His sin was forgiven. He knew that in the end he would be given in the twinkling of an eye a changed body to inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. But Paul doesn't end with our immovability to be steadfast. He also says this always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's no retirement from the kingdom. There's no stopping the labor. There may be times when it's appropriate to take a break and to rest. In fact, rest is very important in the cycle of a believer. 
Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is to be a holy day to the Lord, a day of rest. We are reminded that sometimes a ministry ends. Sometimes God's will is for that particular ministry to stop for a while. Sometimes we who have been involved in a particular type of ministry in the church understand that our time has come and gone. It's some, some, uh, time for someone else to take up the mantle. Sometimes we understand that there is very little we can do when we are weak or even disabled, and perhaps all we can do is pray from our bed. But he says, know this, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Sometimes we look at our work and we say, I don't think this is amounting to anything. I don't see what difference it makes. I don't see that it's making any difference in the world. And you know what? If it's not in the Lord, that's true. But if it's in the Lord, it is not vain. Your labor is important. Your work for the kingdom of God, maybe it's a, a work of encouraging someone who needs to be encouraged. Maybe it's singing praises to God in worship. Maybe it's just coming regularly to worship. Maybe it's using your gifts and talents in ways that were unpredictable from before. But we keep serving the kingdom. We keep on serving the kingdom because we have the victory in Jesus. It's not just that we marvel and revel in the party of the victory. It's that once we understand the victory, then we get to work. We work for the kingdom so that others can celebrate with us, so that God can use us as instruments to proclaim the gospel with beautiful feet, that by our work and labor glorifying God in the workplace, in the home, in other places, people will see and be convinced that God is the only God and that Christ is the Savior. You see, in China, decades of underground worship has continued despite the dangers of imprisonment and loss. In Iran and other Muslim-dominated countries, now record numbers of Muslims are coming to Christ. Why? Because there are those who have staked their lives immovable on Jesus Christ despite all the dangers of the world. In North Korea, the capital was once known as the Jerusalem of the East. And despite the attempts of the current regimes to stamp out Christianity, they can't do it. There are still Christians suffering in North Korea. In the harshest persecution the world has known today, increasingly in the East and in the West, in the bowels of Africa and in the places of the West where Christians are now ridiculed, mocked, and stripped of their freedoms, even in some countries we once considered free, imprisoned. Why are they still proclaiming Jesus Christ? Because in him is the victory. And in him is the reason why we labor for Christ, telling others of Jesus Christ, worshiping him, praying, do those things that he has called in advance for us to do. You see, victory in Christ prompts strength for the believer to get to work. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the victory in Christ, what a wonder, what a wondrous glory that those who are perishable you have made imperishable, or you will make imperishable. Lord, we thank you that you have removed the stinger of death, which is sin. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us 
Help us in this life, this already not yet time where we understand the promises and have the hope and yet still suffer the ravages of sin and disease and all these things. We pray that you will help us to stand. And we pray that you will help us to labor. We pray these things in Jesus' name.